I'm Jorge Salazar, reporting for the Texas Advanced Computing Center, part of the University of Texas at Austin. It might surprise you to know that microbes, mainly bacteria, outnumber the cells of our body by 10 to 1. And scientists are just beginning to understand what those bacteria are doing. It turns out that bacteria inside your mouth drastically change how they act when you're diseased, for instance with the gum disease periodontitis. That's according to research led by Marvin Whiteley and Keith Turner of the University of Texas at Austin. Together they use the Stampede and Lone Star supercomputers of TAC to compare a gene expression of 160,000 genes in healthy and diseased periodontal communities of bacteria. They found that bacteria can actually change their metabolism, basically their diet, in disease versus health. And that's good news for people with gum disease, diabetes, and even Crohn's disease, as these findings might lead to prevention or even reversal of these diseases. Marvin Whiteley is a professor of molecular biology and director of the Center for Infectious Disease at UT. Keith Turner is a postdoctoral researcher in Dr. Whiteley's lab. Drs. Turner and Whiteley, thank you for speaking with us today. What are the main findings of the study um, you've published in April of 2014 in the journal mBio? I think a lot of people out there may have heard about the microbiome or the microbiota now, and we're really talking a lot about the microbes that actually inhabit your body. And so if you're driving home today, I mean, you can probably think about your body is about estimated to be about 10 times more bacterial cells on your body than your own cells. And so you don't look like a big blob on a petri dish because bacteria are really small, right? But there's a lot of them actually there. And they actually impact a lot of things in your body, a lot of processes in your body. Everything from, of course, digestion, protecting you from pathogens, um, and a lot of other things. And what we're really interested in is one of the most sort of prevalent diseases on the planet, which most of you probably don't think of it as a disease. It's periodontitis. So probably the most prevalent infectious disease on the planet is cavities. Most people get cavities. Also, most people get periodontal disease, right? That's sort of when you get gingivitis, your gums bleed a little bit, you know, you start feeling like, you know, that you need to go to the dentist or you're feeling bad about yourself, like you're going to have to go back to the dentist because you're not taking care of your teeth. And um, that's really an interesting disease. And the reason it's interesting is because the same bacteria that are in your mouth when you're healthy are the same ones, kind of, that are there when you're uh, sick. And so really what we were trying to figure out is, how do these bacteria act when you're healthy, and how do they act when they're in a disease state, and do they act any differently? And the real big finding that we had is that they do act very differently, and the main thing that they change when they actually uh, go from health to disease is they change their metabolism. And so metabolism is a big word, but most of you have probably heard about this in your, in your classes, probably in school. You all heard about food webs probably, right, where you studied some sort of food web in school, right? You know, you might think, you know, big organism eats little organism, bigger organism eats that, and bigger organism eats that. Bacteria aren't a lot different from that. They're really sharing nutrients and feeding each other and interacting with each other. And the thing that we found in this paper is that this sharing and how they actually interact with each other changes quite drastically in disease uh, than it does in health. And I think that sort of, I think, was sort of an interesting finding that people hadn't really looked at. Would you mind explaining what sharing is going on 
Yeah, so let's think about it. So you, let's say you, eat, you drink a Coke, right, and it has high fructose corn syrup in it. Fructose is a sugar, right? So there are some bacteria in your mouth that love to eat fructose, but there's a whole lot of them that can't eat fructose at all. They don't, they don't have any ability to eat fructose and grow. And what you have is a lot of bacteria eat fructose and then secrete some other small molecule, some other carbon source that another bacterium really likes to eat, which then eats that, secretes something else that another bacterium likes to eat. And it's really a food web. It's the these bacteria are actually feeding each other. There's, of course, competition going on, too. So when you put fructose in, there's lots of bugs that might like fructose, and they compete for it. But then what you see is this sort of spreading out of start with a big carbon source like fructose and sort of spread around. And so they're sort of interacting and feeding each other and really communicating um, in this. And what we saw in disease was that this sort of ability to what you actually ate really changed in this community. And so the bacteria were sort of changing their behaviors and what they fed on and that was leading to a disease state versus a healthy state. And this ties in, because uh, I, I was trying to figure out the, the wording on your paper, because you, you looked at metabolism, mm-hmm. right? Well, is, so, so there's a no, really interesting question in, um, in your bodies, right? And so if they sample your mouth and ask what bacteria are there, you'll have about 200 bacteria in your mouth. If they ask me, if we look at me, I'll have about 200 bacteria. And some of them will overlap with you, but a lot of them may be actually different. They may actually, we may actually be quite different. And so people are not always the same. And so you may have a different set of bacteria than I have to some degree. But the one really interesting thing is if we look at metabolism of that community, like what they're eating, it's the same. Okay, so even though you have different members than I have, they eat the same things. And so, you, I mean, it's, and, which I think is pretty neat, right? Because what most people who've studied the microbiology of humans and the microbiota, they've actually asked who's there. And they say, what bacteria do you have and what bacteria do I have? And... But really what we should be asking is not just who's there, but how are they actually, what's the metabolism like, and what's the uh, interactions between the bacteria like. And what we're seeing is that your community is the same as my community. It just has different members. What is new about this study? Well, I think that's the big thing that's new, you know, is most people have looked at just who's there. And then what they focus on is the bacteria that are different in you versus me and think they must have some sort of outcome. Maybe let's say you have more cavities than me, right? And so someone might say, oh, well, you also have these 50 bacteria that, that I don't have. And they say, well, these may be involved in making you have more cavities. And what our study actually says is that that may not necessarily be true because it doesn't really matter what, because what our study would say is it doesn't really matter what bacteria you have because the communities are acting very similarly, right? So a healthy community has this metabolism no matter what the members are. And a disease community has a very different metabolism no matter what the members are. And so it's this conservation of like a metabolic community. It's thinking about things more in turn. It's, it's thinking about things as food webs, right? I mean, if you, I always tell everyone, if you think about the African savanna, right, and you actually go in and you look at all the things that are actually there, you have lions and you have hyenas and you have leopards and you have wildebeest and you have all of these animals that are actually there. If you look at it as a whole community, it kind of makes sense. But if you were to only take a one-acre plot out of the African savanna, right, and look at it, it may not make sense because maybe there's not a lion in that one acre, right? And so trying to understand interactions really need to take a much larger, bigger context. And that's what I think this study did compared to maybe some of the other things. Tell us, Dr. Turner, how did uh, TAC Resources, uh, the Stampede, and the Lone Star supercomputers, how do they help in this research? Um, well, they've really helped us a lot because, I mean, they're just great resources. They're very, very powerful 
you know, computing resources. And I think one of the best things about tech, though, um, from my perspective as a researcher, is the people that work there. I mean, the people in the life sciences group, for instance, they've really made it very sort of user-facing. So I, you know, I have a kind of a mild background in computer science. I majored in it in college, but, you know, I'm a microbiologist, and I'm not, I'm not a supercomputing guy. I never thought I would be a supercomputing guy. But I came to campus, and tech, you know, personnel were all over a main campus telling us all about the different ways we can use their resources and made it very easy for me to do so it kind of really opened up a new sort of strata of computational power. And, you know, this study, you know, like Dr. Wiley was saying, like, when we have to look at all these different members in such fine resolution, it really requires a lot of computational power. And, you know, the kind of thing that might have taken a desktop computer a week, two weeks to run, we can run on TAC in just a couple of hours. And it really makes the research process a lot faster because, you know, if you want to test an idea, you know, we're always going back and forth between sort of ideas and testing them. And if it takes you two weeks to figure out if your idea is going to work or not, it drastically slows research. So we'll have a chat, you know, about how to analyze the data. We just run it through TAC. We find out, you know, before lunch, like if it's going to work or not. And then we just retool it, try it again. So it's really accelerated. You know, it's kind of been a really great toolkit for us to apply our, you know, minds to um, the data, basically. Dr. Wiley, could you tell us what is the human microbiome? So the human microbiome, I mean, you, what you can think of it, the easiest way to think of it is just the collection of bacteria that are in or on your body. And you can think of it, we think of it sort of as not only the bacteria that are there, but what are the, what's the genetic composition? What's their DNA uh, say they can do? And that's really what the Human Microbiome Project is doing. We're ta- it's taking humans, it's isolating the bacteria, and it's sequen- sequencing all of their genomes so that we know what the, what the composition of their DNA is. And from that, we can infer sort of what these bacteria may be doing for us, right? And so you can look at what sort of capabilities they might be, they might actually encode on their DNA, and then that can actually be used to think about how they interface with the human and how, what, what kind of impacts they might have on humans. And in describing this research, you use the, um, uh, the concept of polymicrobial synergy. That's a mouthful. Well, so, you know, for most people, I mean, if you go to the doctor and you're sick and you have a bacterial infection, let's say, the doctor will usually tell you you have Staphylococcus aureus or you have, you know, Streptococcus pneumoniae. They'll tell you of a bacterium that you actually have that's causing your disease or your symptoms. But the truth of the matter is in almost all infectious diseases, what you have is that Wherever the infection is, there's more than one microbe. There could be actually many microbes that are actually there. And it's been known for well over 100 years that bacteria in infections actually interact with each other. And so a lot of times what you'll see is, let's say you put a pathogen, you have a pathogen in an infection, let's say Staphylococcus aureus. Most of you, a lot of people may hear of is MRSA, methicillin-resistant, right? Everybody thinks about that, and that's why you use the, you know, the hand wipes at HEB and all this stuff, so you don't spread this around. And um, so when you actually think about this, if you put Staphylococcus aureus in an infection, it'll cause an infection. But if it's there with certain other bug bacteria, and these bacteria may be normally present on your body, innocuous, not cause you any problems, but they may interact with Staph and actually make the infection much worse. And so when that actually happens, that's where the word synergy comes uh, from because it's thought that they're synergistic when they're present there. So what you can think of is when you have one bacterium causes a disease, but when there's another actually there, the disease is much worse. And that's sort of the concept. You used uh, this concept to come up with a new way of, of looking at pathogens. I mean, I guess in the past, uh, uh, people kind of focus, try, try, to, try to find that one bug that's mm-hmm. bad. 
but you're doing something different. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. You know, I mean, sort of the sort of the age of pathogenesis. So the times when we really started thinking a lot about bacteria causing infection. So Coke actually was one of the first ones to actually isolate a specific bacterium, take it out, put it into an animal, and so I can get that an that animal is now sick because I put this single bacterium in, and do that. We do this with viruses, with bacteria, and this has really been the predominant view of how we study pathogens that infect our bodies. And that is, you take a single bacterium, you put it into usually an animal model of infection and ask how is it actually impacting or how is it causing disease. Um, but the truth of the matter is that, like I just said a few seconds ago, it doesn't occur like that. It's almost these bacteria are there, but always in the presence of other bugs. And my lab has spent a lot of time thinking about how are these other ba bacteria actually enhancing these infections. And it, could it just be conceptually as simple as maybe you don't always just have to treat the pathogen, maybe treat the other sort of innocuous bacterium that's there, the infection will be much worse and maybe it's cleared faster. And so that's sort of the idea. And, and there's nowhere where this is more true than in the mouth where you have a diversity of microbes like collaborating together to cause disease. I mean, there is no bacterium that causes periodontal disease or gingivitis. There's a collection of microbes that sort of interact with each other and then collectively cause the disease. Dr. Wiley, maybe you could talk a little bit about the experiment, the science problem that you were, um, you were trying to solve in this study for MBIO. Well, so it was pretty simple. All we did was take humans that had periodontal disease. So usually that means all of you hopefully have been to the dentist at some point in your life, and you know how they go in and they probe your mouth, and they're looking for how deep the pockets underneath your teeth go, right? And the deeper they are, the worse it is. And so once they get to a certain depth, that's when you start seeing problems, and you can lose teeth and have bleeding and those sort of things. So that's periodontitis. And so what we actually did is we went into patients, went into to humans, and areas of their mouth that had a periodontal infection, we sampled that just with a little microcuvette. You just sample a little bit of that. And then we went to another location in their mouth that was healthy and we sampled that. And all we were really asking was how does the healthy site differ from the disease site? And that was really what we were asking. And the way that we were going to ad address that question was by asking who's there, so what bacteria are there? You can do this uh, with some sequencing, new sequencing technologies. But the bigger question and why this was a lot more expensive and, <laughs> than more studies is because not only did we ask who was there, we asked how were they behaving? How are they acting? What are they acting like? And when, the way that we could look at behavior was by looking at the uh, genes that they were expressing. So we could actually go in and say, well, we knew they have this DNA, but what part of that DNA is actually contributing to how they're acting um, by looking at gene expression? And that was sort of the real sort of, that was, exa that was exactly what we did to sort of look at this. Uh, one of the main findings, I believe, of this study is that um, bacteria are more diverse in healthy areas of the mouth, there's more different kinds of bacteria there um, in healthy areas than in diseased areas. Yeah, so that's definitely true. So, I mean, as you, so a healthy, if you take a healthy sample, there's a lot of bacteria there. Um, they're, they're, and they're also present at relatively constant levels. So they're not, it's not like one is predominating and being like 30% of the population. So it's sort of a lot of bacteria kind of spread out not necessarily evenly, but a lot more evenly than, than normal. If you look in a disease sample, what you actually see is there's much fewer num types of bacteria. So that means, so as the healthy, uh, in all of these cases, 
that you have disease. It was initially healthy, and it progressed to be diseased. And so what has happened is you've moved from a healthy site to a diseased site. Some of the bacteria are actually kicked out. They're just not present in the population anymore. And what happens is a few bacteria start taking over the population and being very, very predominant. And it's thought that this group of bacteria are actually the ones that are primarily responsible for these diseases, for causing a lot of the disease that you see. So this deepening of the pocket, the bleeding, and all the soreness that you get. There's like a few bacteria that when they get just a little bit too high in the population, they start kicking out all these other bacteria, and then that's when you actually get disease. Would you maybe get into some of the tools that allowed you to take a step forward um, in looking at these communities. Um, and I, I think I, I think I focused on the right one, this shotgun uh, metagenomic sequencing. Yeah. Um, Dr. Turney, yeah. do you want, you want to maybe tackle this one here? Basically, the idea is uh, you take a sample, like Dr. Whiteley described, from a little microcurate in the periodontal pocket, and then you isolate some of the RNA. So this is Basically, the way I like to think about it is um, RNA, for those of your listeners who you know, know about computers, it's kind of like the RAM of a cell, right? It's the working memory of the cell. It's made from the DNA, which is sort of like the hard drive. It's sort of like all their capabilities, all their processing. So basically, the idea is you take this sample and kind of take a memory dump, right? You, at that moment that you sampled it, you're asking, what are they doing? Like, what kinds of things are they working on? And it's, you can't really get a full picture of it because there's just so many molecules there. But what you do then is you basically get what you can, profile it by sequencing some of these recent you know, technological advances, and then it's essentially a, a search problem, right? So you have this little bit of sequence that you know that they're thinking about right now. They're, they're expressing this gene, so it's somehow important to their physiology. And then you go search across the, the metagenomic database and you say, what, what bacterium did this come from? What gene of, what, of this bacterium did it come from? And um, then the idea is basically that you count it, right? So that the more it's thinking about a certain process, the more it seems to be important to it. And then so when you compare healthy versus disease, if it starts to express a certain gene or subset of genes more, it basically means that process is being, you know, uh, upregulated in, in, the, um, in the community. So the shotgun approach, as you might imagine, is very computationally intensive, which is kind of why we turned to TAC for some of these problems. Right. And looking at the paper, um, I'm, I'm thinking of the, uh, the diagram of, of all the, um, uh, the signal pathways, I believe. And it, it looks, like, it looks like, a, like a city map or something of streets. Uh, it's very complicated. And you, you mentioned also um, um, how you compared the samples to data from the NIH and, and another agency, I believe. Yeah, so um, the idea is, like I was saying, you can look at, at, you know, sort of the working memory of the cell and then compare it back to these big data sets from the NIH. So really, I mean, the Human Microbiome Project was completely instrumental in us doing this study because what they did is they sort of, you know, provide a big roadmap of all the genetic capabilities that are present in bacteria associated with our bodies. And then so, so by looking at the RNA rather than the DNA, we're able to ask what of those capabilities are they using at that time? And you know how we go from those sort of those sequences to that sort of big subway map like you were talking about um, is all based sort of on um, homology. So the idea of homology is basically that all life is related. And um, one bacterium and another bacterium, they might be very you know, distantly related, but they often accomplish certain processes in the same way. So there'll be a family of genes that's conserved across a wide variety of species that all accomplish a conserved function. So 
by projecting it onto the sort of big map of metabolism, which is basically all the reactions that make up life in bacteria, up, you know, elephants and humans, um, we can kind of ask what parts of that large pathway are getting more traffic. You know, so if you think about it from the subway analogy, you know, is traffic bad downtown or is traffic bad, you know, uptown, right? And we can kind of tell that just by looking at how much these genes are being expressed. And yeah, that's basically how it works. These resources that you use, like, is, is there anything that you wanted to add? Well, I think one of the most important things is that, you know, we get all these sequencing reads and then, like I was describing, it's basically a search problem. So you have a little piece of RNA and you want to know, you know, from whence it came, right? What bacterium, what gene? And what we did, sort of the 60 bacteria, like there's no reason we couldn't have looked at 600 or 6,000, but we chose to do 60 because we chose 60 representative bacteria that sort of, you know, could describe in a simpler form the vast diversity that's present in the human mouth across all people. And so that really was, I think, one of the key um, insights that really made this paper possible is that we were able to sort of choose a reference set of bacteria. So a lot of things might, might be very different. You know, we might have very different strains of Porphyromonas, you know, between you and me, but if we just sort of choose, like, the archetypical Porphyromonas and then say, how does this sort of you know, archetypical, you know, porphyromonas behave in my mouth versus your mouth. And, you know, how does that change in health and disease um, in a single person? That really uh, was probably one of the key insights. And TAC, again, really made that possible because we can build these vast sort of databases against which to map our sequencing data, and we can map it very quickly using the resources to TAC. In this porphyromonas, mm -hmm. another mouthful, um, this species of bacteria... I believe was described as like a keystone species. Is that, did I get this right? Or? It was that, it was, so it was another bacterium called Fusobacterium oh. that was actually thought to be a keystone species. And um, this was something kind of interesting that came out of this data. And the reason that it was really interesting was that, you know, you, I, I was telling you earlier about how, you know, your mouth and my mouth are very different in the bacteria you actually have. And so most people have always focused on for diseases. For instance, there's been a lot of really neat work that some of your listeners may have seen on on obesity and the microbes that actually inhabit your gut right and so there's these ideas out there that if you have these certain set of microbes in your in your gut that you're more likely to be maybe obese or it's more correlated with obesity than those that have may have a different set of bacteria that are there and so this has been kind of interesting and what this has led to is that people have sort of begun to look at people who have different sort of physiologies or phenotypes and then asking what bacteria are different and we're going to focus on those so the cool thing that came out of our study was that there was a single bacterium called Fusobacterium that didn't change in abundance in the patients, so was always there at roughly the same amounts. Yet, in a disease state, it was actually ex ex expressing certain genes that completely rewired the metabolism that, uh, that we believe rewired it for disease. So even though this bacterium doesn't change, and so most people wouldn't have focused on this bacterium because it didn't change in abundance. So if you would have just looked at abundance, you would have said, ah, it's the same. It's probably just doing the same thing in health and disease. But by looking further and delving deeper in and saying, what's the behavior of that bacterium in health and disease? You see its behavior completely changes in disease. And we think it actually is sort of doing a couple of tasks that are allowing for the disease state to actually um, to persist in, in vivo. And so for that reason, we called it a keystone species, which is basically a, a species that's there at relatively low abundance that does something really important for a community. That's sort of a way to think about it. So if there's any ecologists and evolutionary biologists, a lot of them don't like that term. But um, 
In our case, I think it was really sort of something interesting and appropriate for what we were sort of looking at. How does this research help people uh, with periodontitis, dun-dun-dun, gingivitis, you know, um, or uh, other related diseases that you mentioned in your paper, uh, diabetes and Crohn's disease? There's a lot of diseases that now we think are not caused by a pathogen actually getting into your body, but instead by a sort of uh, dysregulation of the bacteria that you actually already have. So just like periodontitis, you know, if you look at the bacteria that you have in health and disease, um, they're pretty going to be pretty similar, right? I mean, health is more diverse, but if you look at the bacteria that stay, they were there in health all the time. It's not like you got introduction of a bacterium in that said, oh, now you're going to get periodontitis because I'm here. And so these are really called microbial shift diseases as the way we sort of put them, and it's just shifts in the microbes that you actually have to more of a community that causes harm rather than health. And so we're really, there's, a, there's a, like I said, a number of diseases, but most people have focused, what most people have focused on is simply asking who's there. And I think what this study did is it sort of delved further into at, and showed that it's not just necessarily who's there that you need to be looking at, and it's instead important to actually look at what their behaviors are. And you might think about, so how is this going to make somebody, uh, how is this going to help someone, right? Well, I mean, one of the big sort of topics in microbiology and I think in science now are biomarkers, right? So can I predict that you're going to get sick before you actually get sick, right? And so could some of these things actually be biomarkers, right? So someone who is prone to a certain disease, someone who may be prone to something, can you actually come up with a very quick way to assess maybe the behavior of the community quickly and say, are you on the progression from moving to health to disease? And then provide some sort of preventative measure when you get there. That's sort of one thing. The other thing is just trying to understand how the pathogenic community has rewired itself to be uh, harmful instead of helpful, and then asking very simple questions. Well, how do you make it go back? Is it only these two processes that for some reason, can I feed it something else so that now it goes back to health? I mean, these are sort of really easy things that one can actually think that you can manipulate bacterial populations numerically very easily by things just feed them something else, right? And so you might be able to shift them back. And so these are sort of the ideas, I think, that we've sort of been thinking about in our lab that I think are probably pretty going to be pretty pervasive as we sort of move forward. What's next for this research? So what's next for us is really, you know, what we've done so far is look at health and disease. What's the difference? But what we're, the study that we're planning on next is to actually look at the transition between health and disease. Like what happens as you move from a healthy population all the way to a diseased population? And basically take time points as you move and ask, are there certain sort of times where you see a transition that we could go look for and say, oh, this person is on the way to disease? Right, so if you actually look at a progression, right now we just have a beginning and an end, right? So you know what it looks like when you have a bad, have bad periodontitis and what it looks like when you're healthy, but is there some sort of, but it must transition somehow, right? And so what we're trying to look at is more of a time course along the way. That's probably, I think, one of the more interesting sort of questions. And then the other interesting questions is sort of, I think one of the coolest thing we found is that the, the fact that the metabolism of my population and your population during disease is the same. And I think what we're really going to go do, trying to do is manipulate that in some way, right, and ask if we perturb that metabolism, will it now transition back to health? 
right? And so that's the question, right? And I think that's a pretty interesting question. There may be ways to actually do that. I think I'd just like to add, um, sort of like Dr. Whiteley was saying, there's a lot of areas of health that the human microbiome can influence. And I think that these are very complex problems. And so the sorts of technological advancements that you know, we as a field have made in the last 10 years, and the sorts of resources that are available, you know, for instance, like TAC at, at University of Texas, and hopefully you know, future uh, supercomputing facilities elsewhere, I think really enable sort of a new level of discovery. Instead of just looking at a single process and a single bacterium, you know, very myopically, we can really apply these approaches to very big problems and ask very open-ended questions about um, just general community function. Um, and I think, you know, within the human, you know, outside of the human, bacteria are everywhere. You know, they've been on this planet for way longer than we have. And so, you know, understanding how they work together um, really requires a lot of technological power, and that's been fantastic. What's the most important thing you want people to know about this research? Well, I think the most important thing is, like I said earlier, I mean, is really thinking about your microbiome, right, and how it actually impacts sort of health and disease. You know, thinking about the fact that you have a set of bacteria on your body, and in sometimes the way the community's set up, it's healthy for you, and then other ways, times it can be, it can change in some, maybe in some even minute way that the members change in some way, or a member starts behaving a little bit differently. You can now go to disease, and so I think trying to understand, if you can understand what that trigger is, why would you go from health to disease? I think is probably something I think we're going to learn a lot about in the next ten years. Medicine's going to change, I think, a lot in the next sort of. 10 to 50 years, you're really going to be thinking about these sort of questions a lot more is what is your microbiome actually doing and is that impacting why you're here in my office today? You've been listening to scientists Marvin Whiteley and Keith Turner of the University of Texas at Austin. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar. <laughs>